Well, amen. It's a new day, church family. Uh, there's a lot of news today. Uh, it's new for me to get to uh, preach as your pastor for the first time. It's new for guests in the house. It's also new because in spite of 10 years of ministry where I have taught or preached for the most part two times a week, if not three, I have never actually preached a text like the one we're going to look at this morning. So it's a new day, but we're going to preach and look at the text we're going to look at this morning because we understand from Scripture that every last word in the Bible is breathed out by God, which means all of it's authoritative, and it means all of it is sufficient, and there's not a single word that's there that God didn't intend to be there, so we better pay attention to all of it. So if you got your Bibles, I want you to take them out, and we're going to head to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians. If you, maybe you're new, haven't picked up a Bible before, just turn to the very back and go back about 14 books, and you'll find the book of Philippians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Some of you in Bible drill past would call it General Electric Power Company. But we're going to pee in the book of Philippians. And here's where we're going to go. We're going to walk through, over the next several months, the book of Philippians. Why? Because as I, as God prepared and, and worked and stirred in my heart as I prayed, Lord, where should we go as a church? There's not a church in the New Testament that we know enough about that I would long and pray for us to be more like than the church in Philippi. It's a church that is uh, active and engaged and hungry for the mission of God. It's a church that is encouraging. It's a church that was called to humility. It's a church striving for the sake of the gospel in a very lost and broken world. So we're going to walk through, and, and what kind of church would we hope and pray to be? Be like a church in Philippi. So if you've got your Bibles, look down, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's why I tell you it's new, because we're just looking at the greeting this morning. We're just looking at the greeting. We're not going to skip past quickly from the greeting because Paul lays out in the greeting a massive and profound truth that will drive the rest of what we will see the Holy Spirit write through him in the book of Philippians. And so what he writes is Paul and Timothy. And just, just remember who's writing here, Paul. We first meet Paul in Scripture in Acts chapter 7 as, as those who stone Stephen lay their coats at Paul's feet we find in Acts chapter 8 that Saul, before he becomes Paul, is engaged in a massive assault and persecution of believers all throughout Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas. We find in Acts chapter 9, Saul's headed up to Damascus for the sole purpose of hunting down and arresting Christians. And on that road, Paul literally sees the light. And God reveals himself to him. Jesus calls him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul has a conversion moment, a conversion experience. Paul's life turns forevermore, and he goes from being Saul and is now called Paul. And we don't see Paul again. What we know from Galatians chapter 1 is that after that time that Paul would begin, we would go out to the wilderness where he would relearn and walk through his theology, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, as we'll see later in Philippians, a, a well-learned 
scholar of the Old Testament. He went back in the wilderness, and the Lord walked him through, and he, he reworked to understand the true theology. And then he had at least a 10-year ministry there in Tarsus, and we see him again in Acts chapter 13, ministering with Barnabas in the church in Antioch when the Holy Spirit says, church, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work I have for them. And that work would begin the rest of the book of Acts where Paul proceeds to take these international church planting journeys. We call them Paul's missionary journeys. And on those journeys, the second of which, he meets a young man by the name of Timothy. A young man by the name of Timothy who's grown up with a pagan and lost a, a non-Christ-following father, but who has a Christ-knowing and following mother and grandmother. And Timothy knows Christ. Paul begins to take him under his wing, and, and Timothy becomes Paul's son in the faith. This is who's writing. Paul is writing, and Timothy is there with him from where he is writing. Now, it's important. Where is Paul writing from as he writes this? Paul's writing from prison. Paul is under house arrest in Rome. He has appealed to Caesar, and he has this two-year period, as you find at the end of the book of Acts, where he is under house arrest. He is literally day and night sitting inside a small house chained to a Roman guard, but still given the freedom to meet with people, to host people, and to write. And so in this time, Timothy is there in Rome with him, and Paul from house arrest, from prison, is writing to the church in Philippi. And notice what Paul says about he and Timothy, because this greeting in Philippians is actually unique for Paul's letters. One, this is the only church Paul writes to where he does not name himself an apostle. Every other letter to a church, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Why does he not with the church in Philippi? Because the church with Philippi is a little different. The church with Philippi is overall walking well with Christ. The church in Philippi recognizes and encourages Paul. The church in Philippi is not coming against Paul. Paul feels no need to assert an authority there because there's a need of correction. Instead, Paul just simply says, bondservants, or maybe your Bible says servant, or the word literally in the Greek is the word doulos, which literally means slave. This is also unique for Paul's letters. There's only three of Paul's letters where he refers to himself in the greeting as a servant. Romans, Philippians, and Philemon. And there's a reason for it that, that we'll look at in a moment, but understand the weight of that word. He says, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. There is an intentionality there. There is a weightiness there to use a term that is just as uncomfortable as it is today to use a term that no person would ever choose for himself. Yet Paul says, Paul and Timothy, bond servants, literally slaves of Christ Jesus, to the saints, the holy ones, those who have been separated out and set apart, not just set apart from some things, but specifically set apart to someone, to the saints, to the holy ones in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Well, church family, I'm not sure what you know about Philippi. I'm not sure if it was on your uh, vacation list uh, to go hit up, but unfortunately, if you go hit up Philippi, you're not going to find a whole lot of activity. You're just going to find a lot of ruins today. But Philippi, you need to understand, is a unique city in the first century world. 
has a long history. In fact, Alexander the Great's father, King Philip, is who established Philippi as a center and haven for Greek culture from which he desired to launch out in a quest to conquer the world and bring it into the Greek culture. Well, that would not be King Philip. That would be King Alexander, his son, who would launch out from Philippi later on, where Philippi really comes in majors. If you remember... Uh, so students, I'm sure maybe you still have to read Julius Caesar for, uh, for your high school English assignments and you at two Brute. Uh, you read Shakespeare's play Julius Caesar, but the reality is when Caesar was murdered, his murderers fled and the final battle to take out his murderers and their armies occurred on the plains of Philippi in 44 BC. And because of that battle... What Octavian would do when he became Caesar Augustus is he would declare the city of Philippi a Roman, a Roman colony, which meant this for every Philippian man and woman, boy and girl, is that if you were born as a child of Philippi, you had Roman citizenship. You had the highest rights in the land. You see, just because you lived in the Roman Empire did not mean you had Roman citizenship as if you live in the United States of America, born in the United States of America, you have American citizenship. That's not how it worked in the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, you only had Roman citizenship if you were of Rome, unless you happen to be from one of these special colonies that were very rare, like Philippi. Because of this, Philippi was a city filled with many army veterans. It was a city made up predominantly of, of Gentiles. It was a city that sat under a 750-foot cliff that on that cliff face were carved all sorts of pagan deities. There were a variety of, of religions in Philippi, the, the foremost of which was what we call the emperor cult. Right, this city filled with army veterans, this city proud of, the, of their citizenship of Rome, this city Philippi was modeled even architecturally to look like a miniature Rome. They were proud to be Philippians. And so when it came time to offer the incense to worship the emperor as a deity, they were willing and readily to do it. Philippi was in the first century a patriotic to the core city for the Roman Empire and the emperor. So isn't it interesting that when Paul writes a people whose background would be very proud, their rights as citizens, they would be the foremost of society, how does Paul refer to himself? Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Setting up what Paul will go into later on in the, in the, in the letter to the Philippians to describe the humility and the selflessness of our position if we are, in fact, belonging to Christ. So he writes to all the saints, to all the church. That's what the saints are here. The saints are the holy ones, those who have been saved by the grace of God through faith. He writes to the church body there in Philippi, and not just the church body as in those who, who are part of the church, but including along with the overseers and deacons. So what the Holy Spirit drives Paul to write here church family, quite literally, is written both to you and to me, to us as saints in Christ Jesus. And here's what he says. He lays out his wish, grace to you and peace from God our Father 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you, that is, the, the, the undeserved, the unmerited, the unearned favor of God, which God bestows for no other reason than his sheer goodness. Grace to you. Not grace to you, church in Philippi, because you lack grace. Well, if they lacked grace, they wouldn't be saints. Because you cannot be a holy one in Christ Jesus if you have not been saved by grace through faith. But what he says is, what he's saying is, his desire, his wish is that the grace of God would abound more and more and greater and greater in them, through them, and amongst them. And not just grace, but peace. Peace in the New Testament, which sits upon that Old Testament idea of shalom, which is not really the idea of the absence of conflict around you, but the idea of soundness, of wholeness, of completeness. And specifically as it relates to one's relationship with God, he says, grace and peace to you from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you, implying that church and Philippi, as, we, as, as you read this letter, my desire for you, everything that I'm going to lay out in front of you, the things I'm going to call you to, or the truth I'm going to remind you of, it is that grace and peace would be known and experienced and abounding amongst you. And church family, as we move into the next steps that God has for us, is that not the desire or should that not be the desire of all our hearts that the, the grace and peace of God would abound, would be known, would be experienced in us, through us, amongst us. You see, it's a simple greeting, church family, but it is rich. It is rich with what it calls our attention to. You see, Paul starts and he, he reminds us at first to remember who we are. He reminds us to remember who we are. Do you see the, 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 the descriptions of who he describes you and I as believers he says first that we are bondservants, or, or quite literally that word, as I said, it means, it means a slave. It is a harsh word. It is an intentional word because Paul doesn't use it in all of his greetings. Perhaps it catches us off guard in the same way that Paul intended it to catch the church in Philippi off guard. Because it is a harsh word. It is a terrible position and it is a position no one chooses to be a slave. Yet Paul says, what is my role in, in regards, what is my relationship with Christ Jesus? That I am his and his alone. He is Lord. He says it at the end, our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. He is master. And it references, church family, the selfless reality of who we are in Christ. If you and I are in Christ in this room today, I've got news for you and I. It's not about us. If we are in Christ, we are his servants. We choose willingly when we respond to the grace of God and salvation to be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. To serve him, to honor him, to, to allow his desires to be our desires, his wants to be our wants, his preferences, his style, his call, his mission to be ours. And Paul's not being overly dramatic when he uses this word. You know why? Because as we'll see in a few weeks when you come to chapter 2, he says Jesus himself took on what? 
the form of a servant, except that word there is doulos, the form of a slave. If God Almighty can take on the lowest of low of forms from a, from a worldly perspective in order to seek us out to accomplish our redemption to save us, then it is the height of self-centered arrogance for you and I to think that we can be something greater than he. Jesus Christ did not come to be served, but what? To be a servant and to lay his life down as a ransom for many. What is the picture of Jesus with the disciples the night before he goes to the cross? He washes their feet as the common household servant. And what is Peter's statement? Remember Peter, oh my goodness, Lord, don't you dare wash my feet. And what does Jesus say? Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part in what I have. Church family, you and I are called to be. Who are we? We are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, which means it's not about us. It's not about our likes or our dislikes. It's not about our style and preferences. It's not about what we want the church to be or not be. It's not about what I want the church to be or not to be. It is about the Lord and the Lord alone and what he wants in his will and his glory. And if we are servants of the Lord, if we, if, we, if we walk in that humility, then it means we must die to self. Why? Because who we are are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we're not just servants. We're also saints, saints in the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you, did you catch that, that language there? It's servants of, but it's saints in. Because that word saints, it means holy ones. And the idea of holiness, we, we often run to the idea that holiness is simply that I am morally pure. And absolutely, holiness carries that idea that morally, ethically, there is a purity. But it's far more than that. The word holy literally means to be separated, to be different, to be unique, to be set apart. And if, if, if historically in the past, sometimes we have taken that to mean, well, to be holy means I must be separated out from the world even then we miss the idea of separation. The idea is not so much separation from, but it's separation unto. A holy one is one who has been separated out unto Jesus Christ. And church family, you and I are not holy in and of ourselves. In fact, you and I, when, when, when we are born, when we, when we are conceived, when we come out of the womb breathing our first breath, it says that we are by nature children of wrath. We are unholy. We have fallen short of the holy glory of God because we are sinners. There is only one who is by nature holy, holy, holy. It's Jesus Christ. But when you and I come to faith in Jesus Christ, it says in 2 Corinthians 5 that he made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to become your sin and my sin on the cross why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. When you and I come to faith in Christ, the Lord takes all of our sin, all of our moral impurity, and what does he do with his precious blood? He washes us white as snow. He takes that separation, he takes that conformity, those chains which bind us into the kingdom of darkness, and he releases and breaks them. And he separates us out and calls us unto and takes us unto his kingdom of light, he declares us holy. Which is why we can walk rightly in right fellowship and right knowing with God, but that holiness is only because it is in Christ and church family. What a joy to know that. 
It means holiness is not dependent upon you or I. It's dependent upon Christ. And that means on my best day as a believer, on my worst day as a believer, my holiness is secure because it depends not on my ability or effort, but on his. We are saints. We've been called out not to live according to this world, value according to this world, think according to this world, hope according to this world, but to live and think and value and hope according to our king. We're not just saints. There's one other uh, way he describes us. He, he mentions peace from God our Father. You see, church family, when we are saved, when we are, when we are redeemed by Christ, by grace, through faith, we're not just, we don't just become servants. We're not just declared holy as saints, but going to an unbelievable step all the way forward, we are adopted in the blood of Christ, sons and daughters of God. We're not just servants in the house of God. We are that, and we need to understand the humility and the selflessness of our position before the Lord. But we're not just servants. He hasn't just opened up the door and said, you can take my breadcrumbs. God, in saving us, has made us and adopted us as his children. We sit at his table where we are able to look him in the eyes, to fellowship with him. We are reconciled to the relationship that God made you and I for. We are his children. We are in a privileged position that is unique from all the rest of creation, both creation unseen and seen, not even the angels have the privilege of being adopted as sons and daughters of God. Only the image-bearing humankind that God made. This is who we are. We're servants. We're saints. We're children. Church family, do we remember who we are this morning? Or is, or is, there, is, is there in some of us, could there be a, be a desire, uh, I like the children part, but not maybe so much the servant part because I have to die to self. Or maybe it's Man, I get the servant part. I'm trying my best. I'm trying my best. I just feel like God, I just can't ever measure up. And, and, and we're missing that we are children loved by a good, good father. Or maybe we forget who we are. We're unsure. We're not there. And so we're absolutely saints if we're in Christ, but perhaps our life doesn't reflect it. Do we remember who we are? But Paul didn't just remind us who we are. He calls us to embrace what we've been given. How do we get to where we are? Well, look, he says, grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. Grace. Grace that is, and this is the remarkable thing about grace. It's, it's, it's easily said grace is getting that which you don't deserve, and that's true. But it's not just that. Grace is this idea that God in his own sheer goodness of who he is looks down on those who by nature are opposed to him. And he looks down and his heart is filled with a mercy and compassion to act in a way so as to correct the problem. And so God in his own goodness takes the action. Grace is, really is an action on God's behalf. He, he takes the, undertakes the action to create and make and to do all of the work necessary to reconcile us back to himself, not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but because he is that good. And his grace is offered in that sense freely because we cannot earn, buy, manipulate it. 
His grace is not just necessary to save us at the beginning, but his grace we find all throughout the Christian life. His grace is necessary to be justified with God. His grace is necessary for the Christian life. What is, what is God's answer to Paul when Paul says, Lord, I'm trying to, to follow you and I, I have these weaknesses. If you would just take these away, I could be so much more for your glory. And what is God's answer to him? My what? My grace is sufficient for you. Grace is not just necessary to start the Christian life. It's necessary for every single moment of the Christian life. And grace will be what brings us home. It's why when you listen to the song Amazing Grace or you sing that song in worship, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Salvation, justification. T'was grace that brought me safe thus far. Grace for the Christian life. Tis grace will lead me home where we've been there 10,000 years. Grace is necessary all the way throughout. In light of this, grace is transforming. See, the work of God's grace in our life, it transforms us completely. It reconciles us to himself totally. It enables us to live out what he calls us to, who he calls us to be. It's his grace that enables us to live it out fully. I mean, just process that. If, if you've experienced the grace of God, it means you and I have been completely and totally transformed. Who we were is not who we are. The old is gone, the new has come. And there is a calling on our lives, who we are. We are servants, we are saints, we are children. And with that comes rights and responsibilities, privileges of our position in Christ. That we actually possess the ability to live out because of God's grace. I just fathom that. So, so when we get discouraged or when temptation comes and says, you're not able to live that out, you can't stand, you can't say no to me, whatever that temptation may be, absolutely you can because of the grace of God. It transforms us. Uh, we find that it's unmerited. It can't be earned or bought. And listen, that God's grace does no respecter of persons. Let's rattle off whoever's resume. I have no more access to the grace of God as a fifth generation pastor than you do if you came to know Christ a moment ago. Because the grace of God by default is unmerited. It's not a respecter of our resume. It's particular. It doesn't bypass our sin as if our sin is nothing, but it calls our sin what it is and it, and it overcomes it. His grace demands a personal response. You see, church family, his grace is not something we just fall into. Well, you know, I never I was born outside of the grace of God. And I suppose along the way somewhere God's grace covered me. No, God's grace demands a personal response. By grace, what? Through faith. You see, for every one of us, and unfortunately, we've lived in a day and time where there are church denominations that teach as long as you've got the right parents, as long as you get baptized right as a baby, as long as you go through the right class, boom, God's grace is over. You know, God's grace demands a personal response to the one who offers it. It doesn't just demand a personal response, but it's sufficient for everything we need. But understand this about God's grace. God's grace is not a get out of jail free card. It's not apathetic towards sin. It's not just tolerant. Well, you know, God's grace covers us so we can just do whatever we want. God's grace may be free, but it is not cheap. Amen. It is costly. Why is God's grace costly? Because in order to secure our redemption and offer us grace, it cost God his son. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. 
It is costly because it will bid us come and die. It is costly because it will cost us our rights, our dreams, our hopes, all of our things. It will cost us all of that, but it is grace because it will give us and restore us to the one true God for whom we are made. God's grace, grace to you, but not just God's grace, peace. Peace that protects and completes. The idea of peace, again, is the idea of peace is that through faith we have peace with God. It's, there's no longer hostility with God. It's just found in that church family. If you're in Christ in this room today, you don't have to get peace with God. You have peace with God. Now, you may be outside and you may be in, in, in some, some bad fellowship with the Lord, but you have peace with God if you are in Christ Jesus. Peace is a right relationship with God. Peace is a harmony between myself and God. Peace is, is not just between relationship with God. Peace is now enabled to be experienced amongst each other as children of God, where our relationships are in right harmony and appropriate. It's not just that, but, but the peace of God is this idea of wholeness, completion, which means when the peace of God is played out in our life, we can find wholeness, soundness, completion in Christ alone and not in our achievements or works or abilities or body image or fame or popularity or wealth or acceptance of this world. That is not where our soundness, our wholeness comes from. It comes from the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension and guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Peace which comes from the Holy Spirit who indwells and lives within. Peace means our lives are driven by confident conviction rather than fearful worry in the midst of an uncertain and uncontrollable world. It means our safety and security for life are found in the person of Jesus Christ for all eternity, the peace of God, the calmness, the stillness of our soul in the midst of chaos. And when you think about what Paul wishes for the church at Philippi, what he wishes for you and I, grace and peace to abound, perhaps you come to this conclusion just like I do, wow, I can find in my life where too often I am not experiencing the peace of God. It doesn't take, doesn't take much. Pull out your phone, pull up a news app, and I promise you, you'll find an article that'll upset the peace of your spirit. And if, if, if you're lucky to only find one, that's impressive. See, whether it's the mundane realities of everyday life we all deal with, personal issues, family issues, health issues, whether it is looking at the news, seeing what's going on globally, whether it's trying to make sense of it all, it's often hard to really say, yes, I am daily living and experiencing the peace of God. We need his peace. Perhaps the absence of his peace is why we seek our wholeness, our completion, our soundness. We seek for it in other places, in our works, in our achievements, in our identity, in, in, in ways that this world defines us. But Paul's words aren't happens chance here. They're in a specific order. Grace, peace. Grace, peace. 
It's a theological order because you cannot know and experience the peace of God if you have never experienced the grace of God. You can't have the peace of God, that wholeness, that soundness, that right relationship with God, which carries over into a restoration of who I am as a person. You cannot have that peace if you have not experienced the grace of God in salvation. But perhaps, brother and sister, let me go a step past that, that perhaps for you and I who are in Christ, who have this peace objectively, maybe the reason we don't experience it as much is because we make little of his grace in the Christian life. Perhaps the reason we don't abide in peace is because we don't abide in grace. Perhaps we misunderstand grace. We think that grace is something that's simply for the beginning of the Christian life, and now it depends upon me, rather than realizing his grace is sufficient. Maybe we doubt his grace. Maybe the idea that God could really be this good, that truly his grace would would be sufficient for me, would supply for me in spite of who I am, that just is too good to be true. I remember as a student pastor, we took a group of students to camp in Glorieta, New Mexico. We were 10 hours by, by fastest bus ride home. I had students come to me, uh, and, and it took, took about 24 hours to get down to the bottom of it, but we had a student who brought some banned substances to camp. And I confronted this student. I knew this student didn't know Jesus. I wanted him to stay at camp that week to hear the gospel. And so when I first heard of it, I went to him, and, 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 I, and we'll, we'll call him Bob for the sake of the story. I said, Bob, I said, I've been told you brought these to camp. And he said, absolutely not. I said, well, listen, I want to be clear with you. If you brought them to camp, that's wrong. You signed a camp contract that you wouldn't bring them, and I could send you home. But if you will just tell me now If you will just confess it now, there is grace and you can stay. There will be some consequences, but I I want you to stay. But you've got to tell me now. Oh, no, absolutely. I did not. I don't know where those rumors start. I didn't bring it. Okay. Day goes on. We get undeniable proof he's done it. So pull him out. I said, Bob. And he said, you're right. Those are mine. I brought it. I lied to you. I said, well, you know, now I've got to send you home. I'll never forget this conversation. I said, I said, I offered you grace. You could have stayed. Why did you not just tell me you did it? And he looked back with sorrow in his eyes and he said, because frankly, your offer seemed way too good to be true. Church family, could it be that even some of us who've experienced the grace of God and salvation, we as sons and daughters of God still view the grace of God as there's no way that's too good to be true? It's too good to be true that God's grace is truly sufficient for my weaknesses. That's that's too good to be true that God might, in in order for his grace to be what I am relying on daily, that that God might allow me to be in tough circumstances, but truly his grace will never fail. It might be too good to be true that God is really that good. Or perhaps the reason we don't abide in grace is because we cheapen it. We think that grace demands nothing of us. It's just simply a cover, and now we can do what we want to do. Instead of realizing that God's grace, yes, it's free. It's unmerited, it's undeserved, but it is costly. Perhaps the demands of God's grace would cost us things maybe we're not even aware of are sinful. Maybe his, his, his grace demands we, we died our own styles and preferences for the sake of his glory. Maybe his demands of grace or that we die to our own dreams for our life, or maybe our dreams and desires for our kids' or our grandkids' lives for the sake of his glory and plan in their lives. 
Church family, what a glory for us to be captured daily, abiding in his grace and experiencing his peace beyond understanding, living out a whole and complete identity as a servant of the Lord, a saint in Christ Jesus, and a child of the Most High. Because this is who he's called us to be. Do we remember as we walk this new path together? Do we remember who we are in him? Do we remember how we got there, the grace and the peace that God supplies, are we embracing? Are we acting, actively living in those? Because upon remembering who we are and embracing what he's given sits the rest of everything we will walk through together. Amen. So church family, play with me. Father, very simply, your word does not return void. Your word alone pierces our hearts. Holy Spirit, you're in this place. For those of us who know you, you're you're not just in this place, you're in us. And you know where our hearts are at. You know how we need to respond to you. So find our hearts willing to respond. Jesus, it's in your name I pray.